one, two. Here's two. the bevy. Two. Yeah, one, two. to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series. Volume 1, Should Have Been There. Volume 2, Shivering Inside. And Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. Tower clock strikes in the cold night air And it's onward to Liddy Pool for me Home to Liddy again, hey boys Homeward to Liddy One attribute that distinguished the Beatles from the beginning was their identity as a group. The first such group in the history of mass entertainment to elicit the sort of romantic fascination and identification that defined the power of a star. Like the edge of defiance that Sinatra and Presley brought to their careers, the sense of unity and camaraderie the Beatles projected was rooted in their social origins, and it added an explicitly social dimension to their appeal. Teenagers in particular recognize that whatever the nature of their professional association, these four young men were indeed a group of friends. Friends who had grown up in the same place, shared many of the same experiences, and owed one another the same unspoken loyalty that bound young men together in groups since time began. From the outset, there was something atavistic about the Beatles' group identity. The most obvious expression of this, apart from their punningly totemic name, was their uniform yet idiosyncratic appearance, the matching clothes and hair that tied them to one another and set them apart from everyone else. Yet the most potent expression of the Beatles' collective nature was ultimately to be found in their music. For unlike the vast majority of popular recording artists in 1964, the Beatles were not only singers, three of whom sang lead, but collaborative composers, an ensemble instrumentalist who wrote their own material and provided their own accompaniment. This was something very different from the nondescript vocal groups and hierarchical harmony groups that popular music had known. The Beatles were a vision of self-sufficiency, interdependence, and shared ambition that supplied popular music with the archetype of a rock group, a model of musical organization that would endure for decades to come. These are the insightful words of author Jonathan Gould, whose in-depth work, Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain, and America, is not only a biography of the band, but also an astute musical critique and a very, very, very interesting cultural history. 
Gould is a professional musician, a jazz musician, and he set out to write a book that didn't assume that the reader knew Beatles music by heart, a book that didn't take the Beatles for granted. It's a massive work, and, and it grew into something much more than just a musical critique or even a group biography. It became an historical study that carefully placed the Beatles into that platinum setting that was the late 1950s and the 1960s. Look, every single song is discussed, as is each movie, each tour, each gig, but these accomplishments emerge as exemplary and unique products of the era in which they were generated. And it is the era that receives the focus and shapes and molds the Beatles as they shape and mold it. The reader begins to see an intricate link between the Beatles and the fascinating world all around them. Now, because this work is so important, we're going to look at it in two parts. Tonight is going to be part one of our chat with this very articulate and informed Beatles expert, and then we're going to pick up part two in May, and that show will feature a call-in segment in which you'll actually be able to ask questions of Jonathan Gould yourself. So between now and then, I hope you'll pick up a copy of Can't Buy Me Love and read it cover to cover, and that way you'll be able to call in and talk with the author yourself. So, if you will, please help me welcome to the show one of my very favorite authors, the smart and savvy, Jonathan Gould. Let's see if we can get him on the line for you. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Hi, Jude. How are you doing? Great. It's so good to talk to you. Terrific. I'm glad, I'm glad I got through here. <laughs> Do you have a hard time? Um, I wrote down the wrong number, something I frequently oh. do, but fortunately I double-check myself most of the time, so um, um, I found it eventually. Well, I am so sorry you had trouble. Well, we have just been reading a selection from your amazing book, and it has been sitting right by my side for 30 <laughs> years and as I've worked, and I just really think the world of what you've done. So let's just jump right into it. I was talking to the audience about the fact that it's also a cultural history as well as a group biography and a musical critique. And, and to me, writing a cultural history is absolutely an overwhelming task for anybody to undertake. Tell us about some of the topics that you need to consider in writing a cultural history, including the Beatles, that maybe other authors like me or Bruce Spicer or Jim Birkenstadt didn't have to consider when they were writing their book. Well, again, you know, I, I'm, I'm not familiar totally with, with, with everything else, obviously, that's been written about the Beatles, um, especially in the last, uh, I don't know, five or six years. I haven't kept current with things in the way that I once did, so I can't speak to what other people have, have done or have tried to do. You know, one of my, one of my major concerns when I write about music um, is influence, and, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, when when one goes about trying to project yourself back into a situation that's long past and where we're familiar with the results of what's happened, um, in the Beatles' case, the music that they made and the careers that they had and the impact that they had, um, the hardest thing to do for me is to think, okay, um, before any of this stuff happened, uh, what 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 shaped these people? And in, in, in my case, since I'm an American and I'm writing about, or I, I was writing about people who, are, who grew up in Britain, and while their, 
they're roughly of my generation. I'm a little bit younger than they are, but not an appreciable amount. Um, you know, the main thing that I had to ask myself is, well, how did their experience differ from my own? Um, what was unique about, uh, um, you know, ab about their lives, or at least different about their lives th than my own? And so what I tried to do was to steep myself in the social history, I guess is the best way to describe it, of Britain um, in the post-war era, in, in the 40s and 50s, um, when they were growing up there. And what that meant was, um, since music wasn't their only interest, uh, to think about other things that were going on at that time, both in politics and in in British society and in the theater and in film, um, uh, in addition to music, as far as that goes. And, it, you know, the way, the way I did that, I don't know how other people go about doing that, is you just start reading and looking and trying to come across everything that seems to have any relevance to the lives that, um, that, that you know, to, to, to them when they were, uh, the Beatles, the four Beatles, when they were, before they were Beatles, when they were, when they were kids growing up. And it, it, it took me a tremendously long time to write this book. Um, I've since been working on another book that isn't going to take me as long because I'm better at this whole sort of thing than I was when I first started this. But um, and and that's the right word for it. You just you know you learn to you learn what to disregard and what to pay attention to and so on and so forth. But um, fortunately, in the case of the Beatles, you know this was a very well documented period. It's a period that's been written about. Um, there are many people, there were many memoirs of people who were growing up in, in that period, and there was also a very strong sort of, you know, sort of cultural record, I guess is the best way of describing it, so that if you wanted to learn about British films in the 40s and 50s or British radio shows in the 40s and 50s, you know, all that material was available, and I just, I just sort of threw myself into it, I guess is the simplest way to describe it. Mm -hmm. And and you give us so much that you don't find in other books. I mean, I know that I'm going to hear the same stories repeated in many of the books, almost word for word. But I know that when I go to your book, you're going to give me a greater depth and insight because you are considering that cultural history. Well, I, and you know, I appreciate yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Um, one of my rules was that unless it was a really really good story. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't repeat it. In other words, if it had been in, you know, if if uh, if it had been in 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 many of the books, and you know, the, 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 before I started doing this, and as I say, I started a very long time ago. You know, there had been some very good books written about the Beatles. I mean, Philip Norman's book is, you know, sure. has this kind of had this kind of slightly condescending tone about them, which which many of his books have about many of the people he writes about, because after all, he's an English journalist, and that's one of the that's one of the stylistic traits of English journalists is they <laughs> tend to look down on what the, what they're writing about, right? But um, that said, <laughs> it's a very good book. It's you know it, it has a it has a point of view, and you know it it it, it, it it's it's factually quite accurate, and and so on and so forth. The the one thing that I will say about Beatle literature. That, that's always amazed me. To me, the single most valuable book that uh, I encountered is Michael Braun's book, which was a paperback that was published mm -hmm. in 1964 called Love Me Do. Um, right. Michael Braun was, and, and it's, it's, it has never been reprinted, incredibly enough. 
Um, and Michael Braun was an American journalist who happened to be living in Britain in 1963. And as a result, the, the, the Beatles, who at that time were, of course, very interested in, in, in breaking into the American market, were, were delighted to talk to this guy because they thought that somehow or another, because he was an American, you know, this might, this might leak back to America. This was before they were known in America. But in right. terms of, of, of a real portrait of, of who they were at that period, there's nothing like it, and I'm amazed that it's never been reprinted. To me, it's, it's the great treasure. I'll tell you, uh, when, I, when I was researching my book, um, there were no copies available uh, in any of the major sort of libraries that I use, which were university libraries and the New York Public Library. I remember traveling to the university library at Amherst College in Massachusetts and basically sitting there and pretty much typing the book out, you know, because I, I, I couldn't take it out. And I, I just sat there for about a day and a half and just took vast amounts of, of quotations from it because it, it, it's so good in that way. Um, and uh, and to, so, so a lot of my good quotes, as I think of it in, in you know, in, in – in uh, can't buy me love really come from 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 Michael Braun's book, and I've never I've never been in touch with him. I have no idea whether he's still alive or or what. But it's a gem, and and if any of your listeners can ever find it, it's um, believe me, uh, read it. You'll you'll enjoy it thoroughly. Yeah, it is a fantastic book. I was very fortunate to have an old copy that wow. I bought years and years and years and years ago that's yeah. yellowed and the pages are cracking and everything, but I absolutely – a book that I had to do the same thing with was Beryl Adams' book, My Beatles Hell. You know, Beryl was yes. married yeah. to Bob Wooler and then worked for Brian, and I did almost the same thing you did. I found it finally online, and I printed my own copy because I needed that <laughs> primary source of Bailey. So sure. I know. Well, you know, one of the things that you say that really impressed me so much is that the Beatles posed an unprecedented challenge to the hegemony that America had exerted over the world of pop popular music and popular entertainment in general since those syncopated rhythms of ragtime first captured the fancy of Europe on the eve of World War I. Tell us about that. What unprecedented challenge did they pose to America? Well, first of all, we have, um, we have uh, the extraordinary influence of American popular culture, which was an influence on Europe, particularly before we were any other kind of an influence on, on, on Europe. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, American popular music, uh, our, our tradition of popular music is pretty singular in, in, in uh, the modern era, uh, I would say. I, I know that sounds chauvinistic to say that, but I, I think, I think most, most Brits would agree with that also and, and, and many yeah. other Europeans. And you know, it goes back to the the, the influ influence of minstrelsy in 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 the 19th century. It goes then to uh, ragtime, and believe me, the, uh, when I'm talking about minstrel shows, this is this is as as controversial and complex a subject as one can possibly get into. But suffice it to say that um, you know, American minstrel shows, both black and white, were enormously popular in Europe in the 19th century. But when we get into the 20th century, what we're really talking to uh, talking about is Tin Pan Alley, um, what later became known as you know sort of the great tradition of American popular songs. We're talking about Hollywood, which exerted uh, you know an incalculable influence. Um, not just in America, but all throughout the English-speaking world and also beyond the English-speaking world as far as that goes. And we're, t we're also talking about jazz, which in some ways was taken more seriously 
Um, in Europe, uh, in the 20s and 30s, than in many parts of America, as far as, far as that goes. So, you know, right. Europe had had been looking to America for a, a certain type of um, vibrant popular entertainment for a very long time, and had been, um, you know, exporting small instances. I mean, you know, Britain sent uh, sent its its uh, some of its film actors over here, and they played a very particular type of 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 role in American films. They were usually stuffed shirts, they were or or, or eccentric <laughs> or this sort of thing. But the the, the flow of, of 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 popular culture, not culture, but popular culture, was very largely one way from America to the rest of the world for. A very long time, and this was particularly true in popular music because of the, you know, extraordinary influence of African American music on our popular music. Um, and as a result, I mean, you know, Ed Sullivan um, specialized in in introducing Americans, as he thought of it, to exotic forms of 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 uh, music and drama and entertainment of all kinds from the rest of the world that was one of the that was one of the sort of themes of of his variety show and in 1964 there wasn't anything that was more exotic in the american mind than the idea of a british rock and roll band it was it right. was as 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 outlandish a thought as could possibly be um look where we are now as i mean in terms of and and the difference between then and now it was largely orchestrated by the Beatles. Um, within, you know, a year, uh, we had a so-called British invasion of, of, of the American uh, pop, you know, pop music world, um, which has gone on uh, to the present day, obviously. So that, right. that's what I mean when I say that they were, uh, and, and there, had, there had not been anything this dramatic. Um, there had been signs before that. Um, I make a big deal in my book about uh, the influence of My Fair Lady, for example, which yep. was, um, you know, uh, an American-produced show, but which was, a, um, in many ways, an expression of a kind of anglophilic spirit that uh, America indulged in after World War II, um, not before World War II. And, of course, the interesting thing about My Fair Lady is that it represents a romance between a working class English woman and an upper class English man and the you know the 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 um the metaphor there uh and and, and of course the hero or the heroine of 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 the show is 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 Eliza Doolittle ultimately and she's you know she's the surrogate american in that in that scenario there she's the down to earth um, and and the Rex Harrison character is is you know Henry Higgins is of course the stuffy upper class Englishman who's trying to teach her to speak right and trying to teach her but in in the end is utterly utterly charmed by the the the, the authenticity of this working class person well you know um, uh, whatever it is seven or eight years later we replayed this scenario with a, with with different characters but a similar um a similar kind of twist on things uh, or a similar inversion on things is the best way to describe it the beatles um were working class englishmen who came over here and suddenly made americans seem like uh stuffed shirts in a funny way you know? <laughs> that's a pretty big challenge you know it's hard yeah, well, to, to unprove that's true Absolutely, but you know, you know, that's the, uh, again, it's, it's not it's not a perfect parallel, but it, it shows the way that 
and of course the uh, I mean getting into the cultural the cultural historical dimension of that um, the reason I think that Americans were suddenly interested were suddenly open to this this idea um, had to do with the fact that that on a very serious level on on a, on a level uh, involving world history and world economics and world politics mm-hmm. there had been a tremendous uh, a tremendous shift. Um, up until World War One, certainly Britain was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Um, right. Up until World Up until World War Two, the British continued to believe that they were the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Um, mm-hmm. After World War Two, um, there was no question about the fact that America had, uh, you know, had, had essentially um, transcended them as as uh, as as uh, on a political and economic level. And Americans were just getting used to that idea in in uh, and, uh, you know of, of being this world power in the 20 years after World War II, and as a result, our, our, we were disinhibited uh, to, to some extent. Suddenly, the idea of a, of a of an Englishman wasn't as intimidating as it had once been, um, right. and we could open ourselves up to the idea that there were Englishmen who weren't. Um, uh, Upper class, uh, Downton Abbey sort of, you know, um, uh, sure. figures, but but who were um, in some ways uh, very much the way we 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 used to see ourselves, and that was a source of fascination to us in many ways. And I, I think again, um, you know, I'll, I'll say one thing about this book in general, which is you know the, the the subtitle of the book, which specifically references Britain and America. Um, mm-hmm. To me, the most the, the most interesting, the, the, the question that, that that sort of hung over the book for me, um, when I started to learn about the Brit- about the Beatles in Britain, and the the nature of their success there, and how it happened, and what they represented, and all of this sort of thing, uh, it made perfect sense to me. It was it was um, there was nothing about it. Um, I mean, everything that happens on that level of things is somewhat unlikely, but as I say, it it, it made a kind of sense. The place where the story really becomes, uh, uh, well, um, exceptional is the idea that this thing, this, this phenomenon that, that Britain responded to in 1963 suddenly right. leapt across the Atlantic. And Americans who had a completely different or a very different cultural experience, a very different sort of orientation, Suddenly responded to this 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 group and their music and their personalities and 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 all of this um, in a way that was very similar to the British and mm-hmm. you know we're two different countries and that's not something that I wanted to take for granted that the, that our response would be the same and mm-hmm. to me the, the 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 place where the the story really you know goes into another realm um, is at the point where as I say Americans responded to this. Um, to this, what had been a very British phenomenon up until that time. But, you know, you offer a plausible explanation for that, and it really, I think, says a lot, because you point out that in the late 1950s, things in Britain were really changing rapidly, and this new persona was emerging, the angry young man, symbolized by Jimmy Porter and Look Back at Anger. And so... That's the changing Britain, and that's the northern man, the Liverpudlian, the Scouser, that the Beatles are. So this band is sort of that new hero, especially John Lennon, right? Yes, 
Um, I mean, all of them in their different ways. But uh, Lennon was Lennon is the Jimmy Porter character in the Beatles. Let's put it that way, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, if they, if they, if there's one person in the group who um, and you know some of the um, I, I I I I can't quote it exactly. I do in the book. But some of the descriptions of, of Jimmy Porter that um, you know were, were written at the time in 1956, when when Look Back in Anger became a theatrical sensation, and then a year later a film, you know, cinema sensation in Britain. Some mm-hmm. of the descriptions of the Jimmy Porter character sound so much like John Lennon in the sense of the, the combination of of education and alienation and. Um, you know uh, uh, this, this kind of this brutal wit, um, uh, all of that. It's you know clearly this is yes this is a new type of this is a new type of, of English protagonist certainly. Um, he's uh, lower class, but he's well educated, and he's sort of a um, he's a product of, of of a mixture of social aspiration and social frustration i guess is the best way to describe it i love that that's true and you know and and um in many ways now you know uh, there were there were many things about the beatles that softened those edges that john lennon had and and um that's that's an important dimension of them that's not to say they did any, that, that, that's not to say that the other three did nothing but soften john john's edges um they sharpened some of john's edges as well but um in terms of you know jimmy jimmy porter's is uh certainly by um by contemporary standards is is kind of hard to take for one thing he's totally misogynistic um he mm-hmm. he directs his resentment at his middle class wife Who's uh, uh, deserves none of it, you know, as far as this goes. But um, right. again, you know, here again, John had some of that same um, had some of those same impulses, and mm-hmm. as we know from his post-Beatle, you know, life and his um, spent a lot of time um, uh, uh, expended a lot of introspection on dealing with some of those those early impulses that he had, which was to. To sort of make women the the foil of his of of his personality in some ways, um, right. and of course eventually wound up with a woman that that um, nobody was going to make the foil of anybody's personality. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, he definitely. I mean, he's known to have said, and actually did say, women are to be obscene and not heard. Yeah, so well, exactly. He, he a, yes, he has a good bit of Jimmy Porter in him. So, I mean, things are changing on both sides of the Atlantic, and you point that out. And one of the things that you say is that the Beatles, I love this, the Beatles were themselves a product of American influence and domination. Well, I can think immediately of the Shirelles and the girl groups that sure. they really looked to, and Carl Perkins and the country music. But what were some of the other things that influenced them, American influences? Well, again, when we're talking about popular music, and and they could not have been more, um, you know, they could not have been more forthright about it uh, for for all of them. Um, the, the the common revelation um, was Elvis, and and right. it's it, it's here again. This is one of these this is one of these instances in which, when we think about Elvis, we think of this you know this long career. We think of who he became. All of this, but when what one really has to do is go back to, to 1956 and Heartbreak Hotel, and think about what this what what this sounded like, what the effect of this was, um, when when people heard it who had never heard it before, when nothing like this had ever been heard before in that sense, um, and so 
in the case of the Beatles, there was the sort of epiphany of Elvis, and, and this is something that all four of them shared. Um, and then there was uh, an even more interesting that, thing that happened, which was to discover that Elvis came from someplace, that Elvis was not just newborn, that, that, bef- that, well, in some ways before Elvis, there was Little Richard, and before Little Richard, there was Ray Charles, and before Ray Charles, there were all of these, these, these extraordinarily gifted, um, you know, black rhythm and blues singers. And, you know, one of the most interesting things about uh, one of my favorite sort of, of, of John Lennon's sort of uh, accounts of his own, of his own education um, is the description of when he first heard Little Richard, and it was like, my God, the idea that there might be somebody who's who's better than Elvis, that somebody who's who's <laughs> who, who who is, you know, what, what what how shattering that was to him. But at the same time, you know, he had to he had to sort of accommodate that. And so, you know, here again we get to we get to the power of 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 of, of American popular culture and specifically of American popular music and specifically of of the you know, of, of the African-American strain in American popular music, which is, you know, which is the, the common denominator of all of it going back to the 19th century. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, uh, the Beatles were, were, were musically, um, this was their education. And they belonged to a, um, they belong to a very unique generation. And this is something which I think is, is um, when we think about, when we think about, why there was when 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 people like me who are products of uh, who grew up during the 1960s, when we annoy our children and our children's children, if if it comes to that, <laughs> with with our descriptions of how extraordinary the music was um, that was made in the 1950s and 1960s, um, and sound like you know old fogies, uh, you know reliving our youth. Well, actually, no. I mean, um, I, I've had many occasions since since writing about the Beatles to revisit this this same this, this same issue. Um, popular music in the 50s and 60s was truly extraordinary, and one of the reasons it was truly extraordinary was that it was being made by the first generation of people who grew up with easy access to music on the radio and music on phonograph records. Um, People tend to forget that the, the the record industry, both in Britain and America, almost evaporated during during the 1930s. It almost ceased to exist. Um, radio had largely supplanted it, and the difference with radio was that because radio was centrally controlled, the the sort of music that was available on radio was 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 much more limited. It was only really in in beginning in the late 40s and especially in the 1950s that young people growing up had access to all kinds of music, all the time, um, for the price of uh, a 45 or 78 RPM single. And sure. this is the way people learn. I mean, people, uh, especially in music, um, you know, human beings are extraordinarily gifted at the art of, Im- at the art of imitation. This is, this is where it all begins. And previously, in previous generations, a person would have had to travel to hear different types, different styles of music. Um, suddenly, after World War II, uh, you know, this sort of all music all the time kind of sort of sort of potentiality uh, sort of came into existence. And so, a kid growing up in Liverpool could listen to Little Richard very easily. Um, he wasn't on the BBC, by the way, um, n- not for a few oh, yeah. years, um, yeah. but he could go out and he could buy a record and. Um, 
Uh, and and this was this 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 caused a, a revolution. I mean, a true revolution in you know what in technical terms we call performance practice. Uh, in in the ability of of people to 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 learn different styles of music, to play their instruments, to be exposed to the full range of possibility. And if you expose you know uh, human beings to 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 new possibilities, they will master it very quickly. And that's what happened, um, well, among other things, in, in England uh, in the 1950s, is these kids suddenly had access to this music, they had access to guitars, and they sat down and they figured out how it was done. And once right. they figured out how it was being done, then their own native intelligence and their own native talent and their own native creativity um, could, could be brought to bear on it. And... The Beatles were, you know, clearly one of the most spectacular instances of that that we've had. Yeah, yeah. And you think that there are 600 and some odd documented skiffle groups turning into rock and roll groups in Liverpool. Sure. And, of course, they're one of them. And you talk about the influence and the personality of Liverpool and how it changed and molded the Beatles. And it, it's Chapter 3 in which you address Liverpool. And I am so taken with the eloquence with which you describe the city. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you if you would just read us a little bit from that chapter and then maybe talk about the importance of Merseyside and, and how it shaped the Fab Four. Okay, well, um, again, you know, uh, a, a few things, I mean, a few big points about Liverpool. Um, you know, I spoke before about Britain's power and prominence in the world. And right. Britain's power and prominence in the world was largely a function of its empire, of this extraordinary economic and political empire that they really created for the most part during the 19th century. And they did it in an era when the only way you could move anything around um, outside, of, uh, outside of your own country was, was by ship. And mm -hmm. while London was always the great metropolis of, of, of England, going back to the Middle Ages, um, and by the way, the only metropolis of, of England, which makes it a bit different from a country like America, which has a New York and has a Chicago and has a Los Angeles and so on and so forth. Um, you know, in, in, in Britain, London has a, a centrality that, that uh, New Yorkers, I'm a New Yorker, we would like to think we have, but actually we don't, as far as this goes, yeah, right? Yeah. We'd like to think we're the center of the universe. But, <laughs> but, but in London, you really could think of yourself as being at the center of, 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 of the country and when Britain, when, when the British Empire, when the sun never sat on the British Empire, you could even think of yourself mm -hmm. as being at the center of the world. Well, that's all well and good, but the great imperial port, the export and import port of, of Britain was not London, it was Liverpool. And Liverpool was the place that, that um, beginning especially with the, with the cotton trade and so on and so forth, um, that, that, uh, that, that the goods came in and the manufactured, the raw goods came in and the manufactured goods went out. And so right. Liverpool from, from early on in, in the 19th century uh, developed this very special character in, in a way that no place besides London was. Uh, it was connected to the rest of the world. And it was filled with people who came from the rest of the world. Uh, there were Malays in, in, in Liverpool. There were, there were um, uh, um, you know, black Americans in Liverpool. There were African mm -hmm. sailors in Liverpool. There were Chinese in Liverpool. There were, there were people, quite simply, from all over the world, who, um, not huge numbers of them, but, but uh, in a country um, that, that is, is sort of ethnically as, as homogeneous as most of England is, um, it was very unusual. Plus, there were 
great numbers of Irish and great numbers of Welsh in Liverpool because it's just across the Irish Sea from Ireland, and it's um, right. really just up the Wirral Peninsula from 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 Wales. So it was it was um, it was a British. It was as close to the, this notion of a melting pot, um, and sometimes not a melting pot, just a pot that um, <laughs> that, that that we you know that, that, that existed in Britain. And it created a very, a very distinctive culture. And one part of the culture was that it was very largely working class. Britain, on, uh, excuse me, London, on the other hand, was always dominated, um, well, you know, until until the 19th century, by almost an aristocratic sensibility, and then from the 19th century on by a middle class sensibility. Um, Liverpool had a middle class, and it even had a, a small aristocratic class. But the vast bulk of the city was was working class, and this is a uh, this is a, a concept that I think current day Americans can relate to uh, more strongly maybe than Americans of of the Beatles times. Um, did there was there was an, a, a, an extraordinary combination of grandeur and squalor there. There were mm-hmm. there was great wealth, and there were the there was the um, the kind of residue of great economic wealth and the docks and these huge public buildings that they have that are sort of grotesque looking in some ways, but they're nevertheless impressive by any standard. And then these, these, these vast sort of stretches of squal- truly squalid slums. And um, when you have a situation like that where you have a lot of very, very poor people, in some cases desperately poor people, living around the, the, um, what, what was be, becoming by the middle of the, of, of the 20th century, as I say, kind of the relics of this, this great uh, imperial sort of history, uh, you're going you're gonna to have some interesting social attitudes floating around, I guess is the best way to describe mm-hmm. it. So you asked me to read something from the book, um, and yeah. I think this, this maybe will be the... Um, this maybe is, is, is uh, that is, as it relates to Liverpool. This maybe is is, is the paragraph that um, uh, I think people will recognize most strongly as relating to um, relating to the Beatles. There's a reference in here, by the way, to Tommy Handley, and Tommy Handley was was the most popular radio comedian of Britain during in in the 1940s. Um, and Liverpool had a long tradition of producing uh, um, music hall comedians, and then right. uh, the the sort of the, the extension of music hall comedians in popular culture and radio and so on and so forth. And Tommy Handley, as I say, was probably the um, uh, the best known uh, uh, sort of um, sort of you know representative of this kind of humor that they had. So I'm going to read the last paragraph from from the Liverpool chapter, and it, and it relates to the Liverpool accent, which of course everybody, which is which uh, is referred to Liverpool accent and, and dialect, I should say, which uh, the the local term for which was scouse. Um, right. Which, by the way, refers uh, supposedly to a type of stew. Um, you know, in, in New Orleans, uh, which is a, a city that has some affinities with um, with Liverpool, uh, the notion of gumbo, which is their local kind right. of stew, is, is is a metaphor for the the cultural diversity of the place. Well, Scouse is is the same is the equivalent metaphor in in, in Liverpool for that kind of diversity. So um, I'll read this. It says the nasality and uncertain intonation of Scouse could lend a deadpan or a quizzical quality to the simplest of utterances, which made it the perfect medium for the rude, mocking humor on which Liverpudlians prided themselves. Long before Tommy Handley exposed the city's comic sensibility to a mass audience, 
Scouse humor specialized in the put-on, the put-down, and the sarcastic or deflationary retort. Its underlying motive was the management of social aggression, most often through the simple expedient of bringing everyone and everything down to the same level. Thus did Liverpoolians exact some small measure of revenge on the grandiosity of the 19th century merchants and shipowners who had built the city on the backs of its laborers and seamen. Quote, this is a quote from Alan, o, uh, Alan Owen, who, by the way, wrote, the, um, wrote mm-hmm. the screenplay for A Hard Day's Night. And Alan wrote, right. to understand Liverpool and its people, wrote Alan Owen, the Welsh-born playwright who featured the city in his work, you have to get right with this basic fact that any form of pretentiousness must be punctured swiftly and mercilessly. Nobody must be allowed to get away with anything. If they do, you're the mug. Um, and then there's a, 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 another quote here from a fellow named Walter Redfern, who's a, 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 a very august literary critic who wrote a book on puns. And uh, Walter wrote, I was born in Liverpool. I would be flattering myself if I claimed that you need to be a, com- a comedian to survive there. But Liverpoolians do, like punsters, switch things about. They breathe through their mouths and they talk through their noses. They are physiological existential twisters. Now, you know, you hear that, 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 that statement right there and you think about the, the first shock that people had when the Beatles, um, well, in Britain when they first started to give press interviews and in America when they arrived at Kennedy Airport and first encountered the American press. And that yeah. notion of, of never letting anybody get over on you, of puncturing any pretension that's, that's, that, 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 that's, that's, um, that's put in front of you, you know, this was the sensibility that, that they were projecting. And, of course, mm-hmm. you know, in the Beatles' case, um, uh, I guess the simplest way to describe it is this. Liverpoolians, um, people who grow up in, Liver- in Liverpool, kind of become Liverpoolians. They, they, they adopt this persona of the, of, of the, um, uh, of, of whether they're working class or not, whether they're, um, um, and so the Beatles, and this was, I think, something that they particularly developed um, when they, when they first uh, started to go down to London and um, encountered Londoners and also the British press. Um, Liverpoolians, when they're outside of Liverpool, fall into the role of being Liverpoolians and playing exactly that, that, that role that Alan Owen was describing there. And right. um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a natural, you know, as I say, it's, 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 it's a natural role for them to play. They've, they've heard people do it. They've heard, um, uh, well, in the Beatles' generation, they heard uh, both radio and musical comedians do it. And they just fell into this role. And, of course, they were very good at it because they were witty people. And they were especially good at it because um, they were playing this role uh, in front of one another. And, um, you know, one of, the, one, of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite sort of, of, of their many quips with the British press was, um, uh, 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 you know, well, there are many instances of it, but, but the way that particularly John would often puncture Paul's attempts to play the role that was expected of him, uh, uh, you know, to answer questions in a straightforward manner. Um, uh, people would say, you know, they would say, people would refer to, their, to their, their act, for example, you know, this or that about their act. And, and John would say, well, we don't have an act. You know, you know, he would say, well, Paul does, but the rest right. of us don't in that way, you know. <laughs> 
and you know, and, 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 and of course, Paul was you know, was was used to this sort of thing because this is this is the standard repartee um, that uh, you know that, that that one can hear that one can hear among any group of mates in Liverpool. So they they fell into sure. this role in that way in a, in a very easy way. And um, you know, I, I tried to I, I tried to think of what the what an, what an analogy might be in 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 America, and probably the closest thing that I can think of. Um, I don't I don't think for people of of the current generation. I actually live in Brooklyn now, but um, the Brooklyn of the of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which was also this kind of this kind of vast working class borough. On, on the edge of Manhattan, on the edge of New York, Brooklyn had a similar kind of quality. It had a distinctive accent, it had a distinctive attitude, and that attitude was was proletarian and at the same time um, self confident, not not kind of um, not beaten down in any sort of way. And and that too is a big part of the sort of the sensibility of Liverpool. Mm-hmm. You know what it is for me, Philadelphia. Yeah, well, I, I, can uh, see I lived in- absolutely. Yeah, I don't I lived know there Philadelphia five years. well enough, but yes. Well, it just their city planner was from Liverpool, and the cities are so similar. The clock towers in this center, and is the that right? God, I never knew team. that. That's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The climate and everything, and I, I. Oh, I can totally see at it. At least, yeah. Five of my trips to Liverpool were made from Philly, and so I never felt like I left Philadelphia. I, you know, it's the same sort of uh, working class. We're going to say what we think, but we're warm and we're friendly, and we don't want you to stay in a hotel. Come and stay in our home, sort of people. I, I think that's brilliant. Yes, I think that's that's. I mean, now now that you say it, I think that's exactly right. <laughs> Absolutely, they're just so great. They're so, so great. Well, yours is the only book that I know, besides Liverpool, the fifth Beatle, that really considers Merseyside's extreme influence. And that can't be said strongly enough. I mean, if you're considering who the fifth Beatle is, in many cases, I think Liverpool is the fifth Beatle. But Hamburg played a big role, too. And and you consider Hamburg in Chapter 7. And you say in there something I love, Astrid Kirscher would play the goddess in the Beatles' myth. Tell us yeah. about that. That's a great concept. Well, um, you know, um, one of the things that the Be- the Beatles are many things. Um, they're perceived in many different ways, but there is this kind of, um, and I, I always downplay it when I, when I say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is this mythological aspect to their story, um, and sure. what I mean by that is uh, the, the 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 phenomenon. Of uh, of a group of young men um, going to some far off place, some strange far off place, and going through some kind of a transformation there. Um, mm-hmm. In the Beatles' case, a very positive transformation. Uh, you know, this is one of the oldest stories that human beings have te- have been telling themselves. Um, in one way or another, this is the story of the Iliad. After all, it goes back. What I'm saying is a long way, and it's a story about about. Um, it's usually men usually young men, um, and it's uh, young men far from home, and something happens to them uh, as a result of this journey. And, uh, you know, when I say this, uh, when I would write about this, I, I would just, I, I would think what, what, uh, what someone like John Lennon, uh, how he would puncture the pretension of, 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 this, of, 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 of this observation, okay? That said, though, uh, there's a, you know, the mythological dimension of all of our lives is, 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 is a reality. Um, we respond to these types of stories. Um, 
so you know one of the one of the the common themes in these 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 mythological journeys um it, it, they involve encounters with all sorts of people and and in in the beatles case um you know they went to this uh this world famous den of iniquity which is which is mm-hmm. which is what the 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 san Pauli district in 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 hamburg was it was a world renowned pleasure pleasure district this was the this was the id of of um of you know of of european protestant uh uh sort of sensibility this was the place where 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 the buttoned up um lutheran world of germany let it all hang out in one way or another right and um and here the, and and they were as astonished by it and in some ways as delighted by it um, as anybody else, uh, you know, their age and of their background would be. Um, and within that, there were, uh, in most mythological journeys, there, there are monsters. And um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the gentleman who, who, who um, uh, owned the, uh, the, the, the club that they first played at there um, was, was always described as this, this terrifying-looking character. And then there are goddesses. Right. And in the case of Astrid, um anybody who's seen a photograph of her knows that uh she really was a bit of a goddess i mean here was this here are these 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 five englishmen who have come over from from you know from from liverpool to this they're in the city where they don't speak the language at all except enough to offend people basically and or offend the natives that is to say and they encounter this strikingly beautiful blonde german girl um who's Roughly the same age as, as they are, who has uh, her own very strong artistic sensibility, and uh, falls in love with one of them, and he with her, and um, she she plays an amazing role, which is that Astrid takes them seriously as um, right. in the way that they look, and to a lesser extent, but still important extent, in the way that they play in a way that nobody ever has. She recognizes, um, uh, well, she recognizes the kind of beauty that they have. And, you know, one of the things about the Beatles, and, and this is true about Elvis, less so about Elvis, but it's, it's true about, um, about many of, of, of the people who, um, it's certainly true about Bob Dylan. Uh, it's true about Mick Jagger. Um, there are a lot of people in, in popular culture who aren't considered um, beautiful or attractive until they are. Um, right. Uh, you know, in, in the 1930s, someone who looked the way Mick Jagger looks would never have been. Con- I'm talking about Mick Jagger in <laughs> 1965, let's say, would never yeah. have been considered to be a beautiful young man. He would have been. Right. I don't know what he would have been considered, but he would. He was certainly. If, all you have to do is think about Cary Grant, and you understand that this was not the ideal of male beauty that existed uh, at that time. Um, the yeah. same thing in many ways is true of, 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 of the Beatles, uh, individually and, and collectively in a certain way. Um, they weren't considered handsome until they were handsome in this way. And, and Astrid is the first mm-hmm. person who sees this quality in them. Well, not only does she see this quality in them, but of course she sees through this whole aura of kind of uh, uh, this whole pretense of kind of rocker toughness that they're, um, that they're projecting. She realizes that these actually aren't tough kids. She realized that, that, um, that, that 
Stu and Stu Sutcliffe and, and, and John Lennon are actually art students, and she knows about right. art students because she's one herself. She recognizes mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows that the, these are that these that these 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 kids who are portraying this role of 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 kind of loudish rockers are actually uh, smart, sensitive, articulate, uh, aware people. And and at the same time, she sees this kind of beauty in their leather-clad sort of, you know, uh, pretensions to toughness, and she photographs them. And she photographs right. them in a way that, that nobody, no, certainly no, no musical group, has ever been photographed before. And I think this is another one of these things that, that um, it's, it's, it's so obvious that it's, it's sometimes hard to realize it. Before... I looked at, at, at hundreds, maybe thousands of, so to speak, publicity photographs of, um, mm-hmm. of groups of, of jazz musicians, of rock and roll musicians, so on and so forth. And the common denominator of everybody in the world of entertainment was that they always dressed up. If you were going to have your photograph taken for a, a publicity photograph, even if you didn't own a tuxedo, you rented a tuxedo or you rented a suit right. or you put on your suit and you combed your hair and you tried mm-hmm. to look as as... Um, conventionally presentable as you possibly could. And Astrid does something totally different. Astrid brings them out there and, and, and uh, sort, of, you know, sort of arranges them on trucks and on, on, you know, on bomb sites and things like this and, and photographs them looking as, uh, in one sense as scruffy as they possibly could look, but in another sense, with this kind of um, this kind of quality that brings out this this very um, this very interesting beauty that they all have, and so mm-hmm. when I say that she's the goddess, she's sort of the person who puts a kind of spell on them in that moment. I mean, she casts That's a right. spell, and that spell uh, is again in in a, in a bunch of again we have to remember how young they were, you know, in a bunch of impressionable kids. Um, in their, you know, in their teens and, 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 and early twenties, um, this kind of attention from this kind of a, 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 this kind of a woman who, by the way, doesn't even speak their language. I mean, they're communicating, right. you know, it's, it's, one, one has to sort of imagine what the level of communication was. It was all, it was all nodding and all gestures at the beginning at any rate. I mean, eventually she learned mm-hmm. to speak English and, Actually, they hardly ever learn to speak any German because, like all Englishmen right. abroad, they never put any attention to that at all, right? Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. eventually, they learn to understand one another on a, on a pretty on a, on a pretty real level. And I'm sure that uh, that uh, Stuart learned some German because he was the sort of person who would in that way. But anyway, the, the, so the, the 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 reference to the goddess is um, she casts a spell on them and. Mm-hmm. When they return to England from especially that first trip to Hamburg, they are transformed, and, and they're transformed um, on the one hand uh, musically, because they've had this experience that um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about, I think, in, in, in a rather interesting way. They've, they've put in um, several thousand of the 10,000 hours that, 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 that anybody needs to, to put in to get good at something. Um, right. And, but, but it isn't just that. It's also that... Uh, their whole sense of themselves has changed. Uh, and it's what's here again, what's so interesting about that is, um, you know, when, when we, we hear the descriptions of, of, of their, their, their first, their, you know, their first appearance at the Litholand Hall, um, it seems like everybody else recognizes this too. They've, they've never, 
these are the Beatles. Everybody knew about them. They were this sort of they were this sort of lousy band that had you know been playing around town before this, and yeah. suddenly they're transformed in this way. Yeah, um, and, and I, she so does I, it. I, yeah, and, and she does it in a certain way. Or let, let's let's put it, um, she ha- she plays a major role in that. Not that they weren't yeah. you know, again always uh, when we talk about about influence, we have to we have to remember that. In the end, um, you know, people like the Beatles are the authors of their own of their own success, and it's an important dimension. Yeah. She's calling forth what all, already existed, and she's presenting them with a self fulfilling prophecy, and they exactly. step up and they they exactly. That. And she, strangely enough, you are not going to believe this. We have three minutes left. Has this hour flown by well, or what? Well, it's I, crazy. You know, I talk so up, let me listen, ask you this. Surely. Can we do three shows instead of two? Because I don't want to give up. We didn't get to talk about Ringo, which we were going to do. And oh my we, there are so many things. Let's break it into three parts. What do you say? Gee, I would be I, I would be pleased to do that. If if you'll put up with 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 my long windedness, I will I will <laughs> I will do this as long as 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 um, uh, anybody wants to listen. And I, I think also wow. at some point it would be very interesting to. Um, you know, have people call in, and uh, I'm sure people will have some questions and some of the outrageous things that I have to say, so I'd, I'd love to talk about that too. Well, let's plan to do that. We will do the next one, listeners, in May, and then we'll do one after that. We consider tonight the very early years. We're going to move into Ringo coming into the band, and we're going to talk about the songs and the song critique and some of the earliest songs. We're going to start with She Loves You, All I've Got to Do, and the cover of Till There Was You in the next show, and Brian and the role that Brian played. So we will address that in May. And I listen, I, I love your book super talented and you make us think it's thought provoking and I can't thank you enough for being on the show tonight Jonathan well I can't thank you enough for having me and as I say I look forward very much to coming back well we we shall do it again and everyone listening next week I unabashedly have to say one of my very favorite guests of all times, Dennis Ferrante. If you don't know Dennis, he was the sound engineer at the record plant in New York. He, of course, worked with John, but also with Kiss and Alice Cooper, Hall & Oates, Wynton Marsalis, Harry Connick Jr., The Four Tops and Cher, and won a Grammy for his engineering work on Duke Ellington's Centennial Edition Dennis will make you laugh. He is funny, engaging, and wonderful. So come back next Thursday night on the Nines and hear and experience Dennis Ferrante. And Jonathan will be back with us in May. But until then, you have several weeks to get Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain and America. Read it cover to cover, and then you'll be able to call in when we get back together in May and ask him some questions and join in the discussion. Until then, all the best to you and yours. Ta-ra and shine on.